Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections to the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I'm talking with Sarah Rose, author of the new book, Spiders of North America from the University of Princeton Press. Uh, Sarah, can you introduce yourself? Yep. My name is Sarah Rose. I'm currently living in Ohio. I got my PhD from The Ohio State University, where I had this great opportunity to look at um, spider communities in response to disturbances such as tornadoes or wildfire. So I've had lots of experience identifying spiders. Have you always been into spiders? Yeah, pretty much since I was really little. I've loved spiders my entire life. I kind of have always been drawn to the underdog. And I think because most people don't like spiders, I took that extra time to try and figure out why people don't like them and found out that they're really fascinating, beautiful creatures. I see through the book, The Spiders in North America, and through your work with the American Arachnological Society, that you focus a lot and you've put a lot of intent. When I was sharing this book with a friend, they're like, man, this person must live and breathe spiders. So like, what keeps you going on the spider kick? We really don't know that much about spiders. We know a lot about spiders, but percentage wise, there's still so much that we don't know that there's just so many opportunities to keep looking into it and researching. And there's new species being found on a regular basis. We're over 50,000 known species of spider in the world. And if wow. you look at the world spider catalog and monitor those statistics, it's constantly going up. We're, I mean, literally you could walk out in your backyard and potentially find a species not known to science. I see. So there's like lots of opportunity for continued learning. It's never gonna stop. And there's, there's, it's just ongoing always. It's not something you're gonna get bored of. Correct. Awesome. Awesome. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's why I love nature. I'm never bored. I'm never bored. There's nothing like every time I'm done something like I, I just turn around and like, Oh, there's something new, you know? Um, can you tell me about the American Arachnological Society? Well, I first joined the American Arachnological Society when I was a PhD student. And I was really impressed that this is a society of people that are researching spiders. It ranges from students to professors to people that have retired from being professors. And it's a really inclusive group. They go out of their way to make sure everybody is, is welcome. And I was just really surprised by the fact that everyone just really is open to sharing what they know and helping each other. There are some societies and clubs and, and different things that you join that you kind of feel like people are very guarding of their research, their knowledge. They don't want to share it. That's mine. And one of the things I love about the American Arachnological Society is there's just always this give and, give and take going back and forth. If I have troubles identifying a spider, I can just email a bunch of people that I know from the society and be like, hey, can you give me your opinion on this identification? And they're all just so willing to help. And just, as I said, they make you feel so welcome. They go out of their way to make sure that they're inclusive and that they, they keep a welcoming society, which I love. 
it sounds like an ideal crew to hang out with and learn with. Yeah, they're a lot of fun too. When we get together at our annual conferences, they're just a really fun group of people to hang out with. Your work there is with the Common Name Committee. Can you tell me about that? So the American Arachnological Society maintains a listing of what we refer to as approved common names. So these are names that, that are with layman terms that most people appreciate that aren't in the scientific field. Because some of those scientific names can be just a tad challenging to pronounce. Um, so giving the, them a common name, something that they can be known by is a really good thing. But if we don't have any sort of official listing, common names become meaningless. I'll give you one example. Um, that would be the banana spider. If you look at the American Arachnological Society's common name list, you will not find banana spider on there. But when someone says banana spider, I honestly don't know what they're talking about because there are several spider species that people commonly refer to as the banana spider. There's Agaipia rentia, there's Trichonephala, and there's also the Brazilian wandering spider that people have this uh, misconception that it often come, comes in shipments of bananas. So when we have a listing of common names that are approved, it just removes that miscommunication, that possibility to be misunderstanding what you're talking about. So we provide a listing that people can submit a request to, to have a common name assigned to a spider. They can submit a suggestion of what they'd like the common name to be. And we maintain that listing of those approved common names, um, which is published on the American Arachnological Society's website so that people can easily go up and, and go online and look and see what the common name for a species is. Half my listeners are in Canada. I'm in Canada, half, half of us are here. Can we submit? Uh, common name suggestions? Yes, absolutely. The, actually, the American Arachnological Society covers all of the Americas, from South America all the way up through Canada. That's awesome. That's awesome. There was one spider I was looking at. Um, what was it? It was a jumping spider. It has the red butt. Uh, I shouldn't say that now that I have your book. <laughs> the, appropriate, <laughs> the appropriate term for the butt would be the opis. Doma, opus dos. You can, can you call it me? the butt or the abdomen. I don't mind. We don't have to be right. technical. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I appreciate this because you offer the skills that I can practice being technical. In the book, there's a really good uh, diagram with all the spider parts and uh, really good glossary with photographs of the parts that are being detailed in the names. So I appreciate. Um, like I've, the word I've been using the most lately is pedipalps. Mm -hmm. You know, so learning how to use these technical terms and to share them in a way that both teaches maybe a common way of saying it, but also the technical ways. It's helpful because when we get down to these anatomical structures, there's important differentiations between arachnids or spider specific arachnids generally, and then other arthropods, right? So these technical terms, actually, I appreciate trying to learn them. What I was trying to do with the book is I wanted to actually kind of have a broad audience. I wanted somebody that knows nothing about spiders to be able to pick up the book and find it useful. But I also wanted those arachnologists that maybe aren't really up to date on identification to be able to look at the book and find it useful. And when you're actually trying to identify a spider to species, a lot of times you do have to go into the scientific literature. 
So I feel like the book can be that transition between I don't know anything to I'm now looking at a scientific paper and it's referring to everything in all the technical terms. I need to know what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. In in this book, back to the common name, you describe um, having that there are headings in the book, there are headings for common names and then there's other colloquial names. What differentiates that? So the common name is the approved name from the American Arachnological Society. The colloquial name is other names that people seem to quite commonly refer to that spider as. And it's funny because I've actually had people email me already to say I've missed a name that they use for a spider. Um, because there's just, it's very regional um, for some of the names. And some of them are just a person decided looking at a spider. I think that looks like the fuzzy bottom spider and that's what I'm going to call it and I'm not going to have access to know all of those names so but it was just if when I was searching on the internet or when I was looking at various websites if they listed a common name that was not approved by the American Arachnological Society I listed that as an other colloquial name so that people would at least be able to make that connection mm. that's helpful that's helpful and I think that maybe I'll email y'all but I'll also just pencil it in my own book as I as I accumulate more names so that I, you don't have to keep putting out new editions yeah. <laughs> um I was wondering like okay so this is this is a big book if I'm not sure folks have seen it yet but it's 624 pages it's pretty big the dimensions uh in metric are 21.5 by 14.5 centimeters so it's a nice book. And as we were talking about earlier, uh, I couldn't, we couldn't figure out, I couldn't find a number for the weight, but it's a, it's a, it's a chunky book. It's a hefty book. I like it. Um, and I fits right in my satchel for when I go out in the field. I like it for that. But you said that someone else, had, or you'd suggested that if the book is too heavy for people, there's also the ebook. Correct. So that's, that, that's a great format. And it comes with all the same, amazing photographs and diagrams and, and uh, ID features as the book does. So I think that's a great idea. But I was thinking about the heft of the book and I was wondering how long does it take to put a book like this together? Because this is extensive. It, they first, um, Princeton University Press first approached me. It was before I'd finished my PhD, which was in 2017. Um, and I agreed to do the book, but with the caveat that I was not going to be able to start it until after I had my PhD, because anyone who's ever written a dissertation understands yeah. the time that that takes. Um, so that had to be my first priority. Um, and unfortunately, it took me longer than was anticipated because we had a couple of family situations that came up right after it was nine days after I graduated with my PhD that my dad had the first of a series of strokes that um, rendered him needing 24-hour care that I became mm. his primary caregiver. But during that time, I was trying to work on the book. But then, yeah, it's been since about 2017 and um, a lot of work. It's yeah. a, a lot of going out and getting spiders. And then um, with COVID, I had actually planned this big round the United States trip where I was going to be meeting up with various people that I knew to go out and collect spiders to be able to photograph for the book. Because I can go out in Ohio and collect lots of spiders and photograph them, but that doesn't help for the people in the Southwest or mm -hmm. on the West Coast or, you know, in Florida. 
Um, and then COVID hit and we were in lockdown and I couldn't do this big trip that I was planning. And there were so many people that came on board with um, sending me spiders so that I could photograph them and identify them for the book or people that had these wonderful photos um, that they contributed to the book. Um, and some of those, they then sent me the preserved specimen so I could confirm the identification to know we got it right in the book. So it was just this big community came together that really helped me out in getting this book put together. But it was a lot of going through the scientific literature, making sure that I knew the, the correct information to put in the book. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of work. It, it is a lot of work. It, it looks, it's beautiful. It's well laid out. Um, all the Princeton field guides are different from the previous one in the layout, I find. But this is very easy to understand. Uh, I, I'm gonna. I'm, the only critique was is like it's already a big book, but I wish there was more. You know, yeah. like that's all. <laughs> you know, like that's the only problem. Give me that's more. That's the other. The other comment that I've been getting from people is, why didn't you include this species, or what about <laughs> this grouping of spiders? So yeah, I wish we could have done more. Um, I had a page limit that I totally blew through with the publisher, and they were just really accommodating and. There were a few species that I had written up that we didn't include just because we had to, to rein it in at some point. I think we're at 509 species in the book. Mm. And I've, I've, found, I've found two of them since. I've got to use this to help ID too. So I'm, I'm very happy. And then talking a lot with a lot of friends about the book and the species that they're trying to ID. So it's a nice one to hand around um, when I get together as pals and nerd out and we can all look at them together. The book begins with like a great introduction to spider ecologies and natural histories, you know, and like this includes, and thank you very much for this, that, that there are some use, those useful diagrams that I was already talking about, because um, they're also included in the glossary at the back of the book, accompanied by those images and like tons of photos um, that you mentioned from a variety of angles. So, you know, if you get a certain view of a, of, of a spider, then maybe maybe that angle will be covered in the book, but I was wondering when I'm out in the field and I'm trying to photograph the spiders, what should I be shooting for so I can come home and identify them properly with the book? So my best advice is to get as many different angles and views of the spider as you can. Um, eye configuration is really helpful for getting to family level. Um, some of the families have very distinctive eye configurations, so you can absolutely ID to family for some of them right off of what the eye placement is. Um, getting some, if you can do dorsal and ventral, those are usually, you know, from the top and from the bottom, those are usually gonna be the most helpful. Um, but yeah, just when I go out and photograph, um, and I know this is true of other people that go out and photograph various animals, I just keep snapping, just snap as many pictures as you can and hope that you get a few good ones out of it. So yeah. when yeah. I come home to edit my photos, I will have thousands of photos and maybe get a good couple of dozen out of them. But yeah, just as many different views as you can. Also making note of, did you find it in a web? What did the web look like? Or was it running on the ground? What was its behavior? because that's going to really help you with putting it into one of the guilds. Yeah. Yeah. And these guilds are, guilds are explained in the book, which I thought was very useful and um, something I've, I've seen in other books since looking at yours. I was like, Oh, I wonder if it's in the other ones, but it is, but it's very helpful to understand how to start 
grouping my spiders and how to start identifying them. Um, I, had, I had a question about, okay, how do I phrase this? Uh, most spiders are generalists. It seems you know, on page 26 in the book, it, it seems like most spiders are generalists. And I didn't think of that, but, you know, maybe we can look at the web and the concept of the web and, you know, it's sort of an indiscriminate hunting pattern when we think of, of webs for a, a way to trap prey. And I, I'm probably also wrong about that because I bet you like, you know, a funnel web is going to trap different kinds of prey than like an orb web. But then I was also wondering, are spider, are there any spiders that are like really specific specialists? There are. So yes, most spiders are going to be generalists. They'll pretty much eat anything that they can overpower and and they'll just that and so that's a, a wide range of arthropods and the occasional vertebrate too, um, which is great because it can be one of our first defenses against um, invasive species. When those invading insects or other arthropods come in, the spiders don't have that um, recognition of that's not food or that is food. They just go, oh, it's in my web. I'm going to try and eat it until if it's distasteful, then then they can discard it. But there are specialists. So. Um, one, this is one that actually circulated the, the internet just a little while ago, um, Dystera crocata. It's called the woodlouse hunter. Um, they specialize on isopods. So the, the woodlouse or the pill bug or whatever you happen to call it. Um, they actually have these really elongated chelicerian fangs and they flip the, the pill bug over so that they can bite it on the soft underside. Most people mm. think they use those fangs to pierce the hard top of the, the bug, but they don't. Um, so those, they are very specific. They will eat other things if they're really hungry, but that's their primary target. Um, there are some of the, the species that are ant specialists. Uriopus is a theridiid, a cobweb weaver that specializes on ants, that um, it builds like this web that's just sort of a, a support structure so it can hang head down over a known ant trail and it literally just picks the ants up off of the ant trail to, to eat them. Um, so there are some specialists. There's also one of the guilds is, is just for the specialists that are spider hunters. Mm. There's a whole group of spiders that they specialize on eating other spiders. And some of them will actually invade the web of another spider, eat the host spider, and then sit in that web and eat any of the prey that gets caught in the web until the web is in a state of disrepair. And then they move on and, and take over someone else's web. Yes. <laughs> I have my, one of my favorite things to tell the kids about at school is that the minks will come along and chase down a muskrat. The muskrat will go into their den. The mink will go in, eat the muskrat, and then sleep there. And they still hang out in the old muskrat den. Or push up. So that's nice to hear that other animals do that same incredibly amazing behavior. Just move in, eat them, stay there. Yep. Take advantage of it while it's there. And then because they're not repairing the web, yeah, it will eventually get to the point that it's no longer useful. And so there is actually a family of spiders that are called the pirate spiders because they do this. That's so cool. Well, when I'm when I'm looking at a spire, say like uh, there's the argiope on the on the cover. Is it argiope? That's how I say it. So okay, great. when people ask me how to pronounce spider names, I just say say it with enough confidence, like you know that's how it's supposed to be said, because most people won't question you. 
Great. I just, I said that, I said that our guy appeared this past weekend and someone said, you know, isn't it our, our geop or something. And so I actually came home and looked up the Latin pronunciation, um, how conventional Latin would be pronounced. And technically, technically, I think you and I are wrong, but it sounds better. So I think I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I admitted to my friends that I'm wrong. Um, yeah. But when I'm, when I'm, when I'm looking at the garden spider, you have, you have uh, the measurement of the female being 19 to 28 millimeters long for the total body length. When I'm measuring the spider, where am I measuring from? So that's from the front of the face where the eyes are to the tip of the abdomen. Okay. So we don't so, include the legs in the measurements. Right. Um, and one of the reasons for that is it's really hard to have a spider completely stretch out its legs. Yeah. To, to get yeah. a nice straight measurement. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause I, I, I rarely get them still like I'm trying to focus on them and they just keep moving from my, my camera, my phone. So they like, I, I don't know how you'd get them the full length, but I guess a good scale, putting them on a, a lined sheet of paper or something that you have a scale before would be helpful. Where do you find the information for your, for your range maps? How do you know who's where? So the range maps, when I decided that I wanted to include range maps, that was a decision that I questioned several times. It's it for some of the species, it's fairly simple. Um, the scientific literature, some of the, the literature does have really well-documented maps for some of the species. Um, iNaturalist and Bug Guide were a good source of information for some of the species. And I say that because there are still a lot of mistakes on some of the, the online resources. There's a lot of misidentification. Um, iNaturalist, for example, if you get two people that, that confirm an ID, it becomes research grade, but there's no way of knowing what the qualifications of those mm. two people that provided that ID are. So there, there are still quite a lot of kinks in that. So that all has to be taken with a big grain of salt when you're looking at the range maps, or you have to spend the time of going in and looking at each of them to see if you agree with the ID. Um, so there's also, um, it's SCAN, S-C-A-N is the abbreviation. It's a listing of all of the specimens from various um, museums around the, the country. And it has the locations that those specimens were collected from. So I can go in to, to scan and search by a species and I can see everywhere that a confirmed specimen for that species has been collected. And so then it was just a case of having a map and putting in the dots for all of those locations. And then sort of taking a little bit of, of a, a license and sort of drawing a, a shape around those dots to say, odds are if they're in Texas and Kentucky, they're probably also in between Texas and Kentucky and just sort of coming up. So the range maps really do need to be taken with a grain of salt as well, because there's also still a lot that we don't know. So if you find something and it says that it's not in the range, that doesn't mean that's not what you found. But they're just sort of a, a starting point, a jumping off point of these are sort of the general areas the, the species is known to exist. Mm. Have, you known, have you noticed any like uh, range changes, like growth in range or restrictions that, that, are, that you're seeing maybe with climate change or any other like well, spread I mean, of the species? 
before going into this, um, for doing this book, um, I'm actually good friends with Rich Bradley, who's author of Common Spiders of North America. Yeah. Um, he also is in Ohio. So it, it's funny that the two big spider books now yes. are both, both authored from people in Ohio. Um, but he was talking about Dolomites albinius, the white banded fishing spider. Yeah. That they seem to be moving more and more northward every year. That it was uncommon for them to be found in Ohio 10 or 15 years ago. Now you can quite commonly find them in Ohio. And we're even getting reports in upstate New York. Um, I'm not sure if we've got any for Canada yet, but I know some people have been on the lookout for it. So that does seem to be one that seems to be moving northward. And that, that probably is in relation to climate change. But the thing to note with spiders is they have to have a dispersal mechanism to, to take advantage of that moving because of climate change. Um, and I just want to touch on this really quickly. One of the, the species that a lot of people keep telling me, oh, it's going to shift its range because of climate change is the brown recluse. So one of the really interesting thing about the brown recluse spider is they do not balloon. Um, so mm -hmm. if you look in the book, it talks about this dispersal method that very small or very young and small spiders use where they climb up onto something, they stand on their tiptoes and they start just releasing silk out into the wind. Um, it's a combination of wind currents and electromagnetic currents will actually pull them up into the air and they'll be able to balloon or drift away to a new location. So if you can do this, you can expand your range for climate change. Well, recluse don't balloon. Recluse also don't really like to be outside much. Mm. Um, they, they are really reclusive. So that's one that I don't think we're going to necessarily see a, a shift northward because of climate change, because they don't have that dispersal mechanism to, to move with the habitat. But I think for a lot of spiders that we're going to start seeing that, that they're, they're going to be in places that they haven't been seen before. And in some of the places they've been seen before, they may not be seen. Yeah. Because with climate change, it's not just a case of shifting temperatures. There's also shifting in the moisture, the rainfall, the droughts, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And general ecologies, like the habitats that they might encounter. Are there any, like, a specific, say I'm looking at, like, lepidopterans, I think of host species. I look at, like, host plants. Are there any sort of associations like that between spiders and their environments? Are they only found... Um, I found a, an image online that you'd taken of a crab spider hanging out in a jewelweed flower. Are there any very specific uh, associations between plants and spiders? I am not aware of any really specific that they are very much keyed into one specific plant species. There are some that seem to be more prairie specialist versus forest species. Um, and that's probably due to microclimate conditions. Um, there is a paper um, that was a while back that said it's basically more about structure, especially for the web building spiders. They're not looking for a specific plant, but they're looking for specific ways that they can anchor their web. If, if you're just tuning in, we're, I'm talking with Sarah Rose, the author of the new book, Spiders of North America. Sarah, I, I want to go back a second because you mentioned the ballooning, uh, catching wind or electromagnetic waves. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I've heard about that before, but I don't know anything about it. What is, 
What's going on there? So when you're, a, especially when you're a young spider, one of the things that you want to do is not live in the same place as your parents. Um, this has been shown to be a driver for a lot of animals. This idea that you need to go somewhere else, um, which helps with genetic diversity in groups. You don't want everyone in one area to be all descendants of the same original great-great-grandparents type of thing. So when young spiders are, are old enough, it usually takes a couple of weeks before they get to this point. This is also true of some of the smaller species when they're adult, if they don't like the habitat they're in, they'll balloon, they'll, they'll go find a new habitat. So as I said, you'll climb up on something, you let out silk, the silk is caught by the wind and the electromagnetic currents, and you float to a new place. Now the disadvantage of this is they don't have control over where they're going. They just say, I wanna go somewhere else and to go somewhere else. If they land somewhere which isn't good, the middle of a road, for example, they mm. would probably then move to somewhere where they can climb up on something and try ballooning again. But hopefully you find somewhere that, that's good habitat and you settle down. Um, and they can balloon huge amounts of distances. In um, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, he notes that one morning on the Beagle, when they're out in the middle of the ocean, they wake up and the, the ship's masts and sails are covered in the silk and all these baby spiders that had been blown out over the ocean and ended up on their ship. Now, for those baby spiders, if they didn't end up on the ship, they probably would have landed on the ocean and it wouldn't have ended well for them. Yeah. But this is also a great dispersal mechanism that they can go these big distances, which is how come spiders are everywhere that they can just pretty much balloon just into most, yeah. most habitats. So um, it's this, they can go at hundreds of miles at times, but wow. usually it's a short distance. Usually it's just a case of from one patch of prairie to another patch of prairie type of thing. How, how does it work with the electromagnetism? Like how, what, what's that all about? So actually that is not my area of expertise, but I would yeah. say if you go online and you search, there was some great research and they have some great videos. I think it's of a Tamisid, a crab spider, where they are actually showing the different airflows and measure the electromagnetic currents and show how the, the takeoff is achieved for this spider. For cool. I'll do that and I'll put a, a link in the show description if anybody's curious afterwards. On, on page 19 of the book, um, it talks about uh, development, growth, and molting that the spiders do, which was new to me. I did not know, you know, if, if a spider loses a leg as, as an immature spider, they can molt and the new leg will generally come back. Uh, it says all spiders molt here. So I'm assuming all spiders can, you know, regain that, that organ or that limb. But it also explains that not only are is it limbs like the legs, but also the stomach and the esophagus as well. Um, what, how, and why would would someone would it would a, would a spider molt their stomach and esophagus? Boy, that's a really good question. I wish I knew the the how they do it. Obviously they do, we've got images of it. It's been well-documented. In some of the insects, they also, um, when they shed their exoskeleton, you'll get tracheal tubes. So it'll look like they have these little strands in the exoskeleton. So there's definitely these internal structures that, that are hardened 
um, like the actual outside exoskeleton that they then shed when they're growing, how they accomplish this. I mean, it's insane to even yeah. think about being able to have your stomach, the lining of your stomach and an esophagus come out of your, your mouth opening while you're pulling out of your old exoskeleton. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 as to, to, to the why, um, evolution is, is, is a crazy thing. Um, so it's not forward thinking all the time. It just is whatever works best. So obviously in, in their evolutionary history, this is, has come along that, that in order for them to have that harder lining of the esophagus and stomach, it then gets shed with the rest of the exoskeleton, but it must work because they're still here. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I one just, more thing I just yeah, wanted yeah. to add in there. Not all of the spiders can regenerate limbs. Okay, cool. Um, most of them can, but um, for example, the brown recluse, um, the cellar spiders, some of the, it seems to be some of the really long-legged spiders. If they lose a leg, it does not get regenerated. That's good to know. Would that apply to a lot of arachnids in general? Like if a tick loses an, a leg, does the tick molt? Do you know? Ooh, I don't know for ticks. I know that for the opleonids, the harvestmen, some people yeah. call them daddy long legs, that they also do not regenerate legs that are lost. Okay. And you, you have an image of a spider here with only five legs, I think, I think it is. And you, you mentioned in the book that they seem to be doing well. They could yep. like, get through and keep hunting and finding prey. That's pretty cool. Oh, when I showed this book to the kids at school, they were amazed by uh, the fungal colonization of these spiders and like these zombie spiders. And they, they took the book from me and were going around to all the other kids and showing them the pictures of this. Do you know anything about this interaction? I'm happy to research, but I was just wondering, you, you might know better than I do. I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know that I have encountered spiders that have been consumed by fungus. Um, when the fungus is, in, is introduced into the spider, it somehow changes the, the brain function of the spider so that the spider will go to a place which is good for the fungus to then grow and release its spores. So yeah, it's it's not just spiders that, that become zombies. Um, there's lots of other arthropods are affected by these fun, fungi in, this, in a similar way, um, mm -hmm. ants and flies and, and all sorts of things that this fungus infects them, modifies their behavior so that it can reproduce, which is terrifying to think that if there was anything like that that ever came along for humans. <laughs> That's exactly what the kids said. <laughs> that's exactly what they were like what if it got to people and it's like a lot of things aren't transferable like that but you know wouldn't that be interesting would be a great plot for a movie <laughs> yeah yeah uh everything can be found in nature if you need a plot for your next science fiction novel you know <laughs> but um yeah again like this book is great i like how big it is i like how much is in here and i like i do use it in conjunction with the bradley book when I need it, but it also it's just beautiful and different. And I love that, you know, you've got multiple images of the spiders and you detail how they can be, how they can look different uh, based on male or female. Um, even you make mention of like the food that they are eating can change the color of the spider. 
It's a very thorough book. There is 624 pages. <laughs> In Canada, it retails for about $45. And it's, it is one of these uh, Princeton University Press field guides. So you, I, I really appreciate them. I have a collection I'm staring at now. But um, did you have any last things that you wanted to say or mention before we cut this off? So I guess the only other thing I want to point out is that spiders really do get a bad rap. Um, yeah. They're blamed for a lot of things they're not responsible for. Most people that claim to have a spider bite, it never involved the spider. Um, but they're really beautiful, wonderful, fascinating creatures. If you take the time to stop and look at them. Um, I've had a lot of people that are arachnophobic that say that once they've taken that time to actually watch and learn and educate themselves that that fear just sort of drifts away because we are never the food source for a spider. That would be another great, and I'm sure there are movies out there of a spider big enough to prey on humans, mm. but there are no spiders that feed on blood, at least not directly. There are spiders that target mosquitoes that have fed on blood. Um, but there are no spiders that directly look to humans for food. So the only time they are going to bite somebody is as a last resort self-defense because you're squishing them. Um, so yeah, take the time, look, learn about them. They are so diverse. They, there are so many different strategies, life strategies and habitats, and you can find them anywhere. Pretty much. It doesn't matter where you are. Go look, you're going to find a spider. And bring this book with you. Right. It's very helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you for taking the time to share your enthusiasm and like love for these spiders. I, I've been talking to a lot of kids about spiders recently since uh, getting a copy of your book. And we have been talking about addressing fears. And I once saw... I can't remember when on TV a long time ago, just an image of a spider and then they slipped in a top hat and then a cane and then some fancy shoes on top of the image of the spider. And it was just like such a amusing way to look at the spider. And I think ever since then, it really helped me understand, that, you know, like they're just like everybody else. In fact, they're, they're doing favors for those of us who don't like mosquitoes or, or other other animals that we find as pests and like you outlined in the book what a great line of defense against invasive species right you know so i'm grateful for you sharing so much of your knowledge on these spiders and these incredible creatures so thank you so much well thanks so much for having me on your show thanks again to sarah rose for taking the time to be on the show for talking about her new book, Spiders of North America, out on Princeton University Press. Every time I get a new field guide, I'm always rushing outside, trying to ID the species that I find in the book, hoping to find them in the field. It's like a magical book, literally, you know, like that it pushes me out. It draws me outside and it teaches me to wonder and be awe again all the interactions that I might encounter, all those relationships that I might see and might be a part of and might be revealed to me through, through interacting with these species, learning a little bit about 
their life histories, what they do, where they come from, who they interact with. It broadens, broadens my view of the world every time I see one of these field guides. So I'm grateful to all the authors that I've got to interview and Sarah most recently about this field guide. So thank you so much. If you're curious about the show, you can always visit the website to knowtheland.com or you can email me at knowtheland at gmail.com. Always into hearing questions, critiques, whatever. You may have noticed also that I haven't put up any podcasts in the past little while. I've been taking some some time off the show in the summer, trying to write some blog posts about things I've been finding out on the land, but mostly just taking a break. Uh, When things get back to normal in September, when school picks up again, then I'll have a more routine schedule and get back to making more shows more routinely. As well, I've got a request again. If anybody wants to give donations, that would be helpful. Some people have donated for new equipment, which I'm really grateful for. But someone actually suggested, because I can't find any resources, uh, any grants or anything like that, from different campus community radio stations across Canada to support. Uh, I want to get some money to do interviews with BIPOC folks. And I want to offer compensation for the labor that they're putting in. I want to interview them as if I'm interviewing them as a consultant to share their knowledge with me, to share their knowledge with every one of us. And I want to know how to do this in a good way. So uh, one way I'm trying to do this is by creating a fund that can go to hiring people to do this consultation work so I can talk to people. I have a possibility of an education grant that I might be getting with a team of Folks I've been working with with the University of Waterloo are going to see how that comes about for some of the interviews I have in mind. We'll see how that plays out, but um, I'm also wanted to ask the community if that would work. So if you're interested in hearing more interviews with BIPOC folks about the, about the work we do, uh, about learning about the land base, about how we can be better allies and accomplices and supporters for the work of BIPOC folks out in the land, hit me up, offer a donation. Anything helps, and it will all go to supporting that. Uh, You can find out more at toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. Take care.